Welcome mountain bikers. We're trying something a little unique today on the inside line with our guest, Patrick Zeust of FSA. He actually builds a brand new wheel from start to finish while we do the interview. Patrick filmed the process and we'll have the video on our site and YouTube channel so you can watch and listen at the same time if you'd like. Summer's on the way and JensenUSA.com has you covered for your riding gear needs. They're having a summer clearance sale on apparel to keep you cool and protected. Jerseys, shorts, men's, women's, plenty of gear to choose from. And as always with JensenUSA.com, if you use coupon code InsideLine at checkout, you can receive 10% off qualifying items. Max's Tires has the new XC Wide Trail tire spec for their Aspen and Recon race tires. 29 by 2.4 inch tires are recommended for 30 mil internal width rims, but they're acceptable on 25 mil internal or larger. The dual compound XO casing tires come in at 720 grams for the Aspen and 760 grams for the Recon race. They dropped this summer, so keep an eye out on Maxxis.com. With summer and prime riding season fast approaching, now's a great time to get your bike into your local shop for some bike maintenance. Hit up SantaCruzBicycles.com dealers to find a great shop near you. Support your local scene, and don't forget that Santa Cruz offers free pivot bearing replacement for life on any of their full suspension frames. We hope you're hanging in there and being safe as things open up. Hope you're getting out on the trails and hope you enjoy our show and little experiment today. We have a couple of audio inconsistencies due to the remote recording, but the stories and the tech insight are well worth a listen. Thanks, listeners. Thanks, Patrick. You. Every day's an experiment now, right? <laughs> Especially right now. <laughs> Give me a big old clap. Nice. All right, let's do it again then. Patrick Zeus. There we go. Yeah, better. <laughs> All right, we're rolling. I've been recording the whole thing. Perfect. And then I guess I'll start building the wheel. All right. So cheater, cheater line will give you the will give you the inside line. Uh, <laughs> Think about favorite tools, favorite bikes, favorite races, favorite riders. Think about all that stuff oh, that we'll boy. get to eventually. But before we start, before any introduction, you were Aaron Gwynn's mechanic when he got 10th at his first World Cup downhill in Mount St. Anne, right? Correct. And his first podium, which was MSA or Bromont the year after. I can't remember which one. All right. Take us, take us through the weekend of the 10th place. What was that like? Just... <sighs> Run, run us through that story, get a little street cred here, and then we'll do the intro and keep going. So we just booked it from would have been one of the, I think it was a snowmass race uh, in Colorado. So show up for the World Cup team in MSA. Basically, I had to pin it across the country, so I was already sleep deprived um, because that drive was not not 100% legal to do in the time that you always had. Okay. <laughs> so, All right. No, wait. Before... Before you go on, it's what do you mean? Like you booked it? Like Aaron had done well enough I regionally? What Aaron had done it snowmass, but I think it had been Justin Leov and Blinky were on the team at the same time, and so they had uh, they had um, he just put in a heater with them, 
And I think he might have beaten them at the Snowmass. It would have been an MSC or a national race, a pretty basic race. Um, okay. But he had just, he put on a heater. And I remember Justin and Blinky both saying, dude, that's a top 10 World Cup run you just put in. Like, you know, and at the time, those guys were top 10 World Cup riders. And so he got the nod to go from the national team to Mont St. Anne. And that decision had been made a few weeks beforehand um because all those guys loved Aaron and you know were stoked on how fast he was and everything like that so um Aaron hopped in the truck with me I think yeah he would have driven over with me and we just you know race ends Sunday you pack up the whole rig as fast as you can and you start hauling um just because it's a long drive I mean yep you yep. know Colorado to east coast with a border wait no that was the year sorry I'm gonna completely screw the story that was the year that national champ. That was the year national champs was right before Mount Snell, when okay. which was his first national champs. He'd had a he'd had a heater on a snowmass probably the week before. We were at Mount Snow. He was pretty much considered a guaranteed win. Um, everybody everybody in the pits was pretty much like, "What are we racing for? Like we're racing that, for second. National Aaron's champs. got this. Yeah, Aaron's got this. Like we're all racing for second. It's what's the point? Um, and that was not the best weekend because in his race run, he's like he smoked a little two to three inch uh, stump and ripped his tire off the rim, rear wheel. Um, mm. You know, just racing happens kind of thing and just smoked it. And he's like. And he's like, I know exactly what happened. I went two to three inches further or six inches further than I have been all week long. Kaboom. Race run over. So mm. kind of crappy, but, you know, he knew he was on speed. So then we cross the border, go up to Mont St. Anne and start gearing up. And, you know, he's on par, just, you know, putting in laps. Pretty mellow stress, right? Like... Hey, it's your first World Cup. Like, just go ride your bike and let's see where it goes. Keep on yep. pace with these guys and have fun. Um, and besides, besides Leo and Blinky, did did other riders know who he was yet? Um, I don't think so because he wasn't really. I mean, and Grubby because Grubby was on the team, but he was so focused yeah, yeah. on four cross, he wasn't racing downhill. Um, you know. I th I'm sure the word was around because, um, you know, the Fox guys were all about him. Fox is going to be using him for testing after Mont St. Anne. Um, you know, so I'm sure there was a little bit of talk of, hey, here's this up and comer. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you show up at a World Cup race and there's a whole different realm of stress going on. And so we're kind of like, well, let's see what he does. And one thing I will say about Gwen is from day one, that kid, well, he's not a kid anymore at the time he was to me, um, <laughs> he was professional, right? He, he didn't act like a rookie on the circuit. So he was always looking for how could he improve, how could he be stronger, how could he do whatever, analyzing his lines like from day one. So that's part of where the confidence came from. Um, so he starts cranking out laps, um, just doing what he does. And, you know, you can kind of hear a little bit of a buzz in the pits because everybody's like, dude, this guy's 
definitely he's there he could be there like let's see where he goes and so you know i think i was wrenching on his bike and justin's bike gregor molchik who was kind of the um one of the mechanics in europe was wrenching on blinky's bike um so you know i just had the two bikes to handle and building wheels um because it's monsanto <laughs> it's pretty much all you do in your time off um, uh, i want to get to that later yeah <laughs> yeah um and so he just kept hammering and just kept putting in laps and analyzing and talking with everybody and it was you know there's a little bit of stress and a little bit of okay you know how's this going but he just took it like any other race weekend there was no pressure right show up see how it goes he's gonna race in the national jersey um i think because that's the only way to get you know he didn't have any points or anything like that and then we're and then he qualifies and i think he qualified he qualified 13th i don't i'd have to you'd have to check the stats on that but somewhere he qualified well you know and so <laughs> i remember being up there and i'm sitting at the start line with him where two riders out maybe from him dropping and he's like i think i'm gonna bar hump the finish line jump and i'm like what <laughs> what the hell are you talking about this is your first world cup like are you insane he's like Kill, it's a great jump like it's just begging for a bar hump i'm like oh my god this is what i've got to deal with like and to be honest <laughs> it's it's my first like real World Cup wrenching too. Like I'd been to Angel oh, Fire. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I'd been to Angel Fire years before um, when I was with the Cannondale crew, but and you know, but I had our kind of national grassroots that were they were rad racers, but you know, this was a different level of dealing with all of this. And so I'm like, oh my god, my racer is deciding that he's gonna go bar hump the final jump. Like awesome. This is this is amazing. Like the guy's actually qualified well. We're on pace. I'm like, okay, here's the deal. Bar hump it if you're feeling good and if it's clean and whatever. But you know, just be be safer than sorry. You know, be better safe than sorry and whatever. And he's like, yeah, okay, fine. And then you know, I later find out he threw a bar hump. And the funny thing is about that is everybody's like, oh my god, he threw a bar hump. That's amazing. Just loving it. And I'm talking to him later, and he's like, that was one of the sorriest bar humps of my life. Like, he was bummed <laughs> on the level of the bar hump he did in, you know, his first World <laughs> Cup race. And so I send him off. He goes down. Um, I can't remember if Blinky or Justin qualified higher, so I, I might have been up there a little bit longer um, because... We, and we didn't have race radios at the time. Like, I didn't have a radio down below to know how anything had gone. And mm. so I'm coming, I'm, everybody's off, I'm loading up all the junk, hop on the lift, come down, and I'm getting off the lift, and it was either Bewley, Melissa Buell, or Nevin Steinmetz, I can't remember which one, mm -hmm. came up to me as I'm getting off the lift and goes, holy crap, he got 10th. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, who, what? And they're like, Gwen, he got 10th. I'm like, no, you're kidding me. And you, they're like, no, seriously, like, I didn't believe him. You know, I mean, yeah. we know the guy has speed, but I was like, what? And <laughs> I run over to the finish line and confirm, like, you got 10th. He's like, yeah. I'm like, oh my God. 
That's awesome. Did, so you know, did he not seem phased? Like he wasn't surprised? He was stoked. He was surprised, but yeah, that was the thing with Gwen from day one, right? From Fontana, he knew he could. Hmm. Like, that's one thing I always, and he always had that, always does have that quiet confidence that, yep, I'm that good. It was never an ego, like I'm better than you guys. Blah blah blah. It was just, no, I belong there. Like, and so, I mean, he was ecstatic and he was stoked. Um, but yeah, he was kind of the, one of the funniest things I love about that story too, is those, I saw some of the squids get, you know, media squids posted some photos and posted some stuff of Gwen the other week. And I remember seeing his helmet from that race. And I know it wasn't after because he had one pair of goggles and one lens that he ran all season to that point. Are you serious? Yep. It had been one lens he had been nursing for the year. <laughs> and after that, uh, Damien Smith, the team manager, called a buddy at uh, Smith and said, um, so we need to get this guy some goggles. And they overnighted <laughs> like goggles and glasses and all that to Bromont. And since then, he's been on Smith. So... Ah, yeah. That's awesome. One lens. I mean, um, we know how one lens lasts in one, you know, one race. And it was... Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. That's yeah. awesome. And then, you know, he went and he did some testing with Fox the next day. And, you know, and then it was, it was MS Monsignor the next year that he got the podium because I came off the lift. And again, whoever it was, Bewley or Nevin, same person... He got a podium. <laughs> I'm like, okay, this is deja vu. You've got to be lying to me. And yeah, yeah. Nope. He got the podium the next year there. Dude, that's yeah. so cool. So, Man. yeah, that was a, that was a hell of a weekend. I was pretty happy with that one. Yeah, I guess understatement. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. Well, let's do this for real. Get an official. That's a dope story. Like we could be. I'm like, that's cool. Let's let's go home. <laughs> no, but welcome, mountain bikers. I'm your host, Sean Spomer, and this is Vital MTB's The Inside Line Podcast. And today we have Patrick Zust, who I know now is not Zwest. That I'm so embarrassed about that. But he's a man wearing many hats over at FSA. And as you've just heard, he has plenty of interesting history within our game. Thanks for being on today. Pretty stoked. Yeah, me too. What are we going to try and do today during this Inside Line? I heard some clinks and clanks in the background. Uh, well, I'm building a wheel uh, for AT, for one of our team riders. Um, so I've actually, just in that story time, I've almost got it laced. <laughs> so it, nice. the, the wheel will be done probably before we're done with the stories, but yeah. <laughs> Sweet. So if you're listening on the podcast channel only, we're hoping that this works out technically. This is a little, a little new for all of us, but we're going to be posting the video of Patrick building the wheel as he's interviewed. So if that gets done, you can see it on the site, on our YouTube channel, all that good stuff. But yeah, dude, thanks for being here. And I wonder if it's going to be like one of those like EXPNDM FNFG kind of sound video thingies, <laughs> you know, one of those. <laughs> yeah, we'll see how it goes. We will. Yeah. How many, how many wheels do you think you've built in your life? Uh, hundreds easy. Probably, anyway, I haven't counted a lot recently, but I've also been building a lot recently, and so I didn't want to count them. 
I'm probably upwards of 500, I guess. All said and done, maybe. Um, I mean, for our team wheels this year, I've already built, I think, um, 25 or 30. Okay. Just, just for our guys. Then, you know, I build wheels for myself just because, you know, when you get decent at building wheels, it's kind of fun to have different wheels with different tires or whatever just to goof around on. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then kind of a close group of friends I build for. Um, okay. You know, anyone who contacts me, I'll probably build them, but I mean, I usually try and keep it pretty small because it's on the side kind of thing. And then- <laughs> You're gonna have an inbox full now. Yeah, well, you know, there's worse <laughs> things. Um, and then, I mean, as we kind of mentioned, you know, working, when I was with Yeti, we were on DT Swiss, back in the day of the old white EX1750s, um, mm -hmm. which were a phenomenal race wheel. Uh, they were their trail wheel, so the rim was a little soft, <laughs> um, which meant you had to build a lot, but they saved race runs, so it made perfect sense why we were on them. I mean, I saw my guys did it a couple times. I saw PD at the end of Bromont one year where they dented the rim so far past the bead of the tire, you could reach up and grab the tube. Are you serious? But they didn't flat. Yeah, like, yeah. Tire was still on, tube was still inflated. Um, you know, they finished the race run and then that wheel went in the garbage. Um, That's... But, yeah, so you built a lot of wheels. <laughs> Give us a breakdown of what you're building right now. Um, right now I've got an Onyx Classic Hub, uh, our new gradient carbon rim. We've been doing the gradient wheels for a bit, but um, a bunch of us kind of pushed to get rim only. Um, so we're finally got those in for, actually just got them in, I think this week for sale, which is kind of cool. Um, Sweet. Some straight gauge spokes and brass nipples just because it's AT and we, you know, he's not exactly gonna be easy on it either. So that's fine. Okay. Um, so you're going straight instead of like double? Yeah. Um, all of my wheels I build double on, you know, most trail wheels I build double kind of all the, you know, that's more, definitely more of a standard for me. Um, mm -hmm. But for the downhill guys, I, and uh, those where I'm not around to maintain them, I build uh, straight gauge with brass nipples. Um, Got it. Just cause and like, uh, you know, when you got guys like last year, I had Volkov on a set of these wheels, same rim, gradient, 28 hole um, on some Onyx. Just, and we just do the Onyx for the guys who need downhill hubs that we don't do a hub spec for. Um, mm -hmm. And I built him a set at the beginning, middle of the year, and he went to, see, he started him at Loose Fest, which he was a little nervous about running a 28 hole carbon wheel at. Um, <laughs> for some odd reason. Um, I had confidence in it. He was like, oh, I'll give it a try. I could have a spare set of alloys just in case. Um, <laughs> but he rode all of Loose Fest, a week at Chattel, a week at Retallic, where there's a video GoPro line of the year that he pretty much missed the trail and just rallied through some rocks. Um, whole Crankworks, and then, um, dark fest and then later in the season he told me he was still actually riding the wheels and he hadn't touched them like when i say still riding the wheels i mean he literally didn't touch didn't have to retention or anything so i was pretty stoked cool. with that wheel build heck yeah sounds <laughs> like it um well i've been having fun on 
the wheel set that you built me. <laughs> Good. Which has the gradients with the onyx and yeah, plus the, the red nips. Like, ooh, that accent is. <laughs> <laughs> that's part of the fun for me like when i build wheels and this is why i like to do it for friends like i like to know what they're riding how they're riding and try and mm -hmm. tune the wheel for them because i mean custom wheels that's half the fun right is like mm -hmm. hey let's have a little color in it let's do a little you know do you need a double butted or can you get away with a straight gauge or whatever so mm -hmm. cool all right well like you said, you're probably going to be done before we even get into it. So. <laughs> well, I'm already starting As to up. tension it, so. <laughs> um, we'll get into your history and all that stuff. Has the uh, the whole corona thing impacted you very much? Um, I'm working from home. So in that sense, not. I mean, I normally work in the office, so it's just work from home now. Um, it's, you know, we're still staying busy. Like, I'm in charge of customer service, too, for us, and... Um, we're still busy like people are still riding bikes for sure so it's yeah it's impacted me but it's not like oh god kind of thing okay cool all right let's get into your history where'd you come from how'd you get into bikes get all that good stuff that if oh, you've boy. listened to an inside line uh, that's how we kick it off so grew up in the hotel industry which is kind of an oddity but just meant i moved around a lot um huh. had, had some interesting you know experiences with that um and then like would you live at a hotel yeah um no way hotel bel-air for three and a half years so i had an 11 and a half like, acre playground that i ran around with on a bmx bike and a skateboard no way yeah huh. <laughs> yeah it was kind of it was an interesting you know setup but yeah my parents have some funny stories of me falling asleep in high-end restaurants and you know whatever it was just like <laughs> to me it was normal i'm like whatever i'm tired i'm gonna go to sleep it's i'm nine years yeah. old and out with a bunch of adults like it's nap time <laughs> <laughs> so um but yeah it was so with all the moving around and all that we ended up for high school we ended up in bend oregon and I mean, I'd always okay. ridden bikes at a BMX bike. I just, as I said, rode around the hotel or neighborhoods or whatever. And in Bend, basically, long story short, found mountain biking and loved it. Um, okay. Also snowboarding. Wait. I rock climbed more in that high school than I did road bikes, but it was part okay. of it. And what year was this? Like what time? 93 to 97. Okay. And then went to college up yeah, in... I got you beat by a year. <laughs> by a year. Woohoo! <laughs> um, went to college up in Walla Walla, Washington. Um, Whitman College. And there, I kind of... You know, that's when I really started to get into biking. And, you know, you could get all the information. Like, you could get information a lot quicker. Internet was pretty prevalent. So I was finding out about racing and, you know... I bought a copy of Crank 2, which I just about wore out. I think when I stopped counting how many times I'd watched it, I was over 50. Um, <laughs> yeah, kind of knew that movie a little too well. Um, <laughs> but I was, you know, I was on a GT Avalanche LE hardtail with a gold Judy. And, you know, it was this legit XC bike. It was great. Um, yeah. But I liked to go down things more and jump off staircases and wanted to get more downhilly. So 
but I was a college student, so I wasn't exactly rolling in cash. So I went down to the local shop and I was like, here's the deal. I need to focus on work, on college, school, for obvious reasons. But I need parts because I want parts for cheaper and, you know, I'd learned about trading in the industry from my dad with the hotel business. You know, you trade rooms for, so you get to go stay at a hotel for cheaper. And so okay. I was like, here's the deal. I'll come in, I'll work for you for free for a couple hours a week, whenever I can. I'll stock tubes, you can teach me how to work on a bike, whatever. Um, I just wanna be able to order parts that I want from at your cost for right now. Like you don't lose any money, I just pay you what you pay them. And eventually I wanna order a bike the same way. And the guy's like, okay, sounds like, you know, I mean, he's getting free labor, just straight up <laughs> yeah. under, the, under the table, free labor. And he's like, yeah, I can't argue with this. Um, <clears throat> So he starts teaching me, and he was the big BMX shop in town. Um, okay. Dealt with a lot of BMX race bikes, and he was known for that. And so he's like, he started teaching me how to, you know, build a bike out of a box or whatever. And I was like, sweet, and just started doing that and really liked it. So hmm. when I went home for the summer, because that was the end of my junior year, when I went home for the summer, I went to a local shop, told them what I've been doing, like, hey, can I have a summer job working here? And they're like, we'll try you out. And worked out and liked it. Went back for my senior year where I wrote my senior sociology thesis on the subcultures of mountain biking. No um, way. 50, <laughs> Do you 50, still have that? <laughs> uh, somewhere. I'm sure my parents oh. have a copy of it or something. 57, yeah. 57 pages of it i convinced my advisors that i needed a week off of school to go to sea otter so that was my first sea otter experience was that spring because oh, my parents what lived in, my parents lived in napa so it was easy uh 2001. okay and Ooh, napa nice yeah so it was like you know we were close and my dad worked in at the time worked in seattle in san francisco so it was okay. an easy way to get down there um so that was research was just go hang out at Sea Otter for a week, <laughs> which was rad. Don't get me wrong, for obvious reasons. Um, and after college, went back to that shop and basically worked there for till the winter, through the winter, uh, moved to Seattle to hang out with friends because I didn't have any friends down there because my parents had moved after I'd left for college. Um, mm -hmm. And Moved to Seattle, worked at Greg's Green Lake here for two and a half years. And the Sea Otter experience, pretty much, I wanted to be a race mechanic at that point. Hmm. So, kind of... Were you were you racing at all on your, like, were you doing racing at all or nope. just going to check it out? Just going to check it out, yeah. I didn't, yeah. my first, I did one XC race when I was at Greg's, which, that was a bad idea. Um... <laughs> And my next race that I raced in would have been 2013 at Northwest Cup. I raced one of the Northwest Cup races. Yeah, cool. So, like, I wasn't a racer. I just, I saw these, I was loving being a mechanic, and these yeah. guys were the best. You know, the race mechanic was the best mechanic, and all these cool pits, and da-da-da. And I'd been watching mountain bike racing since, you know, as I said, like, 93. So I wanted to be part of it. And in fall of 04, Canada, I 
you know, because I'd bug the reps, I'd let them know, and demo job opened up for with Cannondale. Um, so I drove a demo truck for them for two two years, six or nine months on the East Coast, and the rest on the West Coast. And in that time, you do like they had the bare naked uh, Cannondale bare naked grassroots team, like their kind of national team, and so when that race was happening in your area you were the mechanic for it so that was a good intro to it all um, okay but it was mainly run around do demos um which was that was a hard life that was how come just like the volume of the work 365 days a year on the road i didn't pay rent for two years because i was in a hotel every night different hotel yeah. um I think I figured out I drove 65,000 miles a year on top <laughs> of full demo schedule, race schedule, whatever in my area. Holy cow. Yeah. So, you know, you really didn't get a day off. And there's, you know, things have changed since then. Like, the industry's changed. And, a, and that was... I wasn't driving a Sprinter. I was driving a four-door long bed dually with a 28-foot gooseneck behind us. Like, I was the length of a semi-trailer, right? And so... Yeah. It wasn't, you couldn't just go park in a random spot or whatever. Um, but yeah, so I did that for two years. Uh, that ended. Um, then I signed on with Shimano Multi Service for a year. I drove, for one season, I drove the mountain truck. So hmm. just their neutral support rig that went to all the big races. And that was mm -hmm. national. So it wasn't even a territory. I just drove all over the country for the summer. Okay. Uh, after that, went to Yeti for 08 and 09, where, you know, Gwyn's first year was 2008 with them. So kind of up through there. And for that, I was a North American mechanic. So I drove, I you know, national mechanic for all the national races, the World Cups that were in town. I was there for those for Bromont and Mont Anne both years. Um, and then that ended, went back into shops for a little bit. Um, and then in 2012, started FSA as a tech guy, and now I'm running tech warranty QC customer service and dabbling with hmm. a little marketing and a little photography for him. Yeah. So, dude, eight years over there. That's pretty sick. Yeah. It's been, it's been a big run. Did, you know, you mentioned Yeti ended. Like, did you want to move on? Like, what, what happened there? Were things just changing? I wanted I would have liked to have kept going. Um, you know, just the timing of when I found out and how it all went was a little late in the year. So I didn't really get a chance. Like, every, you know, everybody's stuff was set up by that point. Um, and so it just didn't work out. I was like, yeah, you know, maybe next year. And I kind of put the feeler out. But I was living in Bend at the time. And, you know, I love the road. I love being a race mechanic. But... And you got to think this is back right after the whole economic crash, right? So you weren't getting like now where most, if not all of the top racers have their mechanic. Like it's one mechanic for one racer at the World Cup level. Right. Right. Um, and, you know, Gwen had moved on or after that year. Gwen, the next year, went to track and he had Monk. Um or, you know, that would have been quote unquote my ticket, though I don't think it would have, you know, he would have been set anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but it would have been, you know, at that time, like when I was with Yeti, I was handling four guys at a race 
most weekends just by myself. Jeez. Um, so I, there's one of them was Deer Valley one year was probably the worst. Because um, <laughs> the track? Well, Damien had to run home because he had a family emergency. So I'm like, yeah, get on a plane, get out of here. Yeah. Um, so I had eight racers. Yeah, eight racers, 15 bikes because they were racing slalom and downhill. Oh, my goodness. And some weren't racing slalom, but they were racing the Super D or something. I had 15 bikes to run through. Oh, was um, that was that like the big 303 years? Like the yeah. like first or second gen, those huge ones? That was the, yeah, no, it was the legit 303 with the dual rails. Um, it didn't have the split in the top tube. It was the solid top tube. Okay, yeah. Um, but yeah, a lot of linkage, a lot of bearings, which that bike was actually amazingly easy to work on because hmm. um, everything just unbolted. All the bearings were, they had a pinch bolt on them. So you just loosen the bolt and the bearings slide right out. Oh, that's so actually You could take one side of the bike off or the other side of the bike off. Once you understood it, it was an incredibly easy bike to work on. Hmm. Um, but kind of going into those wheels things in what? Practice starts Thursday, racing was Sunday, roughly. Mm-hmm. I built 15 wheels that week. <laughs> um, and that was usually after I'd roll into the condo about 9 or 10 o'clock at night. Clay would be, because Clay was shooting video. Clay Porter, yeah. Yeah, so he was editing all his video from the day, downloading it. You know, he'd taken over three quarters of one side of the dining room table, and I took over. <laughs> I just put a wheel stand there and a box of spokes, and I'd sit there and I'd just build wheels till one in the morning. Holy cow! And then when did you have to wake up? Uh, six. <laughs> oh, gnarly. So it was, yeah. So it was, you know, you kind of showed up a little bleary eyed for, I didn't drink coffee at the time either, which is crazy. Hmm. Um, show up a little bleary eyed in the morning, get, you know, get the momentum going and then, you know, do it again. So yeah, that was, that was a busy week. Still. Did the riders feel your pain? Like, were they, you know, not like helping out, but doing what they could to make life easy? They had, they had their stuff that they had to deal with and you're there to make their week as easy as possible. Right. So you're really not trying to increase their workload on top of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to ask for you know, a favor here. They're like, uh, guys, I don't have time to go get food from the grocery store from you. Here's the keys to the credit card. Right. Can you get some sandwich meat and stuff like, sorry. Um, but I tried not to, but you know, it happened. Like it's just nature of the game. Sure. Um, and, you know, I was doing all the driving for the rig as well, too. So, like, it's not like once the race was over, it went slower for me. I still had to drive somewhere. Yeah. But, so, in that sense, it was it was a lot of work, and it was long days. But, you know, it was worth every minute of it when you show up at Mont St. Anne and Gwen gets, you know, top ten in, you know, first World Cup and the first American to do so in whatever number of years it was. and. Mm-hmm. You know, those guys were all super appreciative and everything like that. So they were, that was a great group to work for. I was, yeah, I was always happy to go put myself just through the ringer for them. Yeah. Do you have a, like a most stressful race memory or just, you know, like where it felt most on the line? Like if you don't get it right, stuff's going to (laughs) explode. Uh, Nothing too bad because, you know, if, if you're prepping everything, you're prepping everything. I think 
I don't know why my stories keep coming back to wheels, but I did have probably one of those just, oh crap moments of I'm really short on time was maybe it was the next year it was Snowmass. And I think it was, I think it was Gwen. I don't know. Can't remember the wheel, but someone right before the race run smoked a wheel, like last practice run and they just killed the wheel. Um, and you know, this was, this would have been a national or a MSC race. So it's not like a world cup where you then have two hours between races between it. It was like practice your morning practice and then you're straight back up. Well, I didn't have any wheels prepped and built. Mm -hmm. So I think we were at, and I had Schusler and Boyce, Joey Schusler and Boyce were oh, in yeah. like racing. Um, but they kind of recognized, oh crap, like at the same time. And this is what was so great about the team. Everybody was there to help everybody. Um, and so while I grabbed the stuff to rebuild the wheel, they pulled the wheel off the bike. And then we stripped rotor, pulled the tire off. I cut the hub out, laced the wheel, tensioned it to what I'd call a one run wheel. <laughs> it wasn't perfect, but I knew it was going to hold. Like, uh -huh. you're going to be fine. I have full, you know, full confidence in the wheel. You're just not going to run it after the fact. <laughs> uh, and I think in 20 to 25 minutes, we had them fully up and going again. Holy like, cow. Right out of the pit. That's like NASCAR uh, style. Yeah, it was a little bit of that. That was probably one of the most stressful just because of the, you know, how quick I had to do it. Mm -hmm. um, Mont St. Anne and Bromont the next year, I had blown up my ankle at um, Sol Vista the week Riding. before. It. Yep. No, I rolled, it, I rolled it stepping off the back door of the trailer. Oh, um, man. So I could barely walk. And then, you know, we'd had such a great year that year before like that was some pressure to perform there um you know just to make sure everything was good but you know that's what race mechanics are for the times when all hell breaks loose and they almost get calmer like yeah there's there is there's that all you mechanics are like that you're just super cool-headed in the moment and i get you have to be <laughs> yeah you have to be and Part of that comes from the repetition. You know, you do this again and again and again and again. You just know what it needs. And mm -hmm. you've worked on that bike. You know, how many times have you torn that bike apart? You know where every bolt goes. And, you know, you can just put it in a bin and you'll know which bolt comes back out and where it goes. Right? Like, that makes a big difference. But it's, it's also being confident in your choices. You know, like I said... That wheel I built in Snowmass was a one-run wheel. I knew it was going to hold, barring them, you know, whosoever bike it was, missing and smoking something that they hadn't hit all week long. Mm -hmm. I knew it was going to be good. So, and I told them that, and I had 100% confidence, and then they go, okay, you have 100% confidence, I have 100% confidence, let's go. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and I think that's what really sets apart a race mechanic is when you when you break the rules per se of being a mechanic you know exactly why and what the situation is you don't just do it just because hmm. um 
and you're fully confident in your abilities, like, you know, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Did, uh, if it's fair to say, it seemed like you were relatively green to, to some of the mechanics out there. Like, did you ever, did you powwow with the, with the elders? (laughs) You know what I mean? Did you ever get like, you know, I mean, monks saved me once or twice, you know, when I, especially when I was with Cannondale those first couple years and I was at a race, like, that's one of the things I will, you know, the life out there is hard, right? Like it's not easy. The hours you put in, I mean, Monk and I at world cups would be the last guys in the pit. and We'd be the first ones in the morning. Like, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of times when, if he beat me, it was because he's sleeping in the truck. Like, <laughs> like, how do you beat, you know, of course he rolls out of the, you know, he rolls out of his truck. He's going to beat you to the pit, but it was, First and foremost, the key is you want your race. You want all the racers to race. Mm-hmm. Like number one, you're all there to race and whatever. And so, you make sure your guys are good and they're set and everything like that. And they're your number one. But if a mechanic walks up to you and says, "Hey, man, I need a hand," and there is any way that you can help them, you help them. Hmm. And that means I've given parts away. Um, you know, I made sure I had one spare so that my guy was good if something blew up. But if I had, you know, four spare rear derailers and someone blew one up and they were out till next week when they got their rear, their new stock, you gave them a derailleur. No question. Mm-hmm. Like, and, you know, because next week you might need a rotor or whatever, but you wanted the racer to race at the end of the day. Because you never, as a mechanic, you never wanted the bike to make the difference negatively. You know, yeah, you want your bike to be the fastest bike because you were amazing and you did a phenomenal job, but mm-hmm. never wanted a mechanical or, hey, we didn't have the parts reason to be done. Sure. So, you know, that was, and that's what was so great about it. Hmm. Like I, the camaraderie, I love. By the way, the wheel's done. 41 minutes and 55 yeah. seconds while talking <laughs> and you tensioned it. Oh, it's ready to go. It needs yeah. tape. And- yeah. Dude, sick. That was quick. Here. <laughs> Is it a front or a rear hub? Front. So okay. lacing takes about a minute less. <laughs> so sick. Rear, rear Dude, nice work. Much more complicated, but um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, also, I don't know how many of those I've built this year, so I know the feel of them. Jeez, so. <laughs> you're, you're pushing your 25 minute record now. Uh, I've come close since then. <laughs> so. Have you ever tried on purpose? No, and that, the, what was insane on that one was that had you know six rotor bolts, a cassette, a tire, two, and all of that install, like and put it back on and everything like that. Like I've never <laughs> tried to beat it. It was it's a fun story, and I'll just leave that one as that one. I don't need to beat that record. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um we'll get back to the like mechanic stuff, like world cup stuff. But, um, do you use like kind of ever tension acoustically? Like just kind of go by ear? Nope. Okay. Because, um, and I, I talked to, I've had this conversation with a few different guys, Calvin from park and what have you. And we've all talked about it. Different spoke gauges will sound different. Okay. Um, different. Sometimes there's different rims will require a different tension on them. Um, you know, especially carbon rims earlier on, you can go quite as high of a tension, uh, things like that. So that'll all affect, 
Um, I also happen to be tone deaf, so it does me no good. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's, you know, people always say there's an art to wheel building. Mm-hmm. The actual act of wheel building is a repetitive process that's measurable. You get a tensiometer mm-hmm. and you can get it exact every time. And there's Did you a use pro- one just now? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, there's, in that way, you know your wheel's built correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, the art comes in, I need to pull it this much, how far do I turn the nipple, right? Okay. And that's, that's what people don't, what people see as the art is the guy, and this goes with everything, this goes with every part of working on a bike, is the analysis that happens to go, okay, that looks like about a two mil movement. If I turn this, you know, one, if I do one full turn, it might turn it about a millimeter or so roughly mm-hmm. and not, you know, not even thinking it through that far, just going, man, it's about a one, you know, I had to redish that one. And I did it with, I think two tries, like got it back into where I needed it. Like mm-hmm. the, the art and the art of the bike mechanics that people are always like, Oh my God, that's, it is, you know, so rear derailleur tune is going, is it a limit screw or is it a, is it a cable adjustment? And how far do I turn the cable adjustment? You know, that's, it looks like an art, but it's just experience. It's just repetition, like anything. Yeah. It's, you've got some feel in there. Like <laughs> it's one of the things I like to say about being a bike mechanic and what about the bicycle, this is me going to get a little, you know, woohoo kind of thing on a bike. <laughs> uh-huh spiritual or something. I don't know how you want to call it. <laughs> Everything working on a bike is a balance of forces. Hmm. It's all a balance. Like if your cable's too tight or too loose, your rear derailleur doesn't work. If your spoke tension's too loose or too tight, your wheel's not centered and then it gets knocked out of true, you know, all your bearing adjustments are a balance of preload versus, you know, some load and not any load. So hmm. kind of, you know, your suspension is a balance between air pressure and all of that, you know, it's all literally balancing forces. So, um, kind of, if you think of it that way, and that's what I mean by getting all ooh, spiritual on it, like, mm-hmm. but that's working on a, you know, it's just balancing it. Yeah. Yeah. No, like I kind of want to go back a little bit. I know you said you went to that shop to get experience or like, uh, to work for them so you could get parts for free. Were you mechanically inclined prior to that? Like when you were younger? Uh, I was a fidget. I took, I took every pen apart you could imagine. I loved Legos. I actually just, since COVID happened, I've been doing Legos again. (laughs) Sick, Uh, really? Much to my wife's delight of looking at those and going, seriously, I'm living with a 10 year old again. Um, (laughs) You know, it's, yeah, but I've been loving it. Like just that mechanic, I've, that was the first mechanical thing I really got into, but yeah, I've always looked at how things worked to an extent the funny thing is don't put me anywhere near a car i have no clue um you know like i could learn it i have no no doubt in my mind i could learn anything mechanical i just bikes are where it came from Mm -hmm. uh, or i learned to love it and so yeah it's just kind of weird that way but i've always fidgeted or taken pens apart or you know you put something in front of me that doesn't you know that I'm bored? I'll take it apart and put it back together if I've got everything handy. <laughs> That's sweet. Did um <laughs> back in the race days? Did you ever? I know it's it's all lovey dovey. You mechanics or there's camaraderie around there, but did you ever hate being beaten by someone or someone's team? No. I, Come on. 
No, seriously. And, <laughs> and I think back then too, you know, this is, it's funny because at the time I never thought about it because I was a, what, 25 to 28 year old guy who just wanted to go play with bikes. So like, but that was <laughs> the economy crashed and there wasn't exactly a lot of money in anything. And so you were all just getting along with what you did. I mean, there might have been someone that, you know, ruffled your feathers or something. It did. I had one racer who played a prank on me uh, at Mount Snell. Um, and he, he'd left a, um, a pee bottle in the truck. You know, they did want to walk to the bathroom and there was a <laughs> water. And later he's like, oh, did you find my bottle? And I'm like, oh, that was you, huh? I'm like, so you realize you just messed with a mechanic. Um <laughs> So, yeah, I, you know, might want to check your bike pretty regularly just to make sure <laughs> I might not make it so it'll fall apart in the parking lot. It might be somewhere halfway down the course and you wouldn't know about it. You'd check and, your stem bolts at the start gate. <laughs> you know, I, I knew his mechanic pretty well. So I walked over to the mechanic afterwards, like, and I just said it completely deadpan to and kind of freaked him out. And I was like, look, I just gave this guy a hard time. I'm not going to actually do anything to a bike. If for some reason it gets a point. I'm going to tell you exactly what I did just so that you <laughs> don't have to chase it, but I just uh -huh. want to, them. and so every time he'd walk by the pit, I'd be like, Hey, how's your bike doing? <laughs> Everything running swift. And then right. Or I think it was race morning. I walked over to the, his pit. I mean, his pit was a uh, 150 feet away from me. Um, so I could see into it really easily. I walked over and Hey, can I take his bike quickly just to mess with him? Like, I'm not going to do anything. I, it's race day. Like, I wouldn't do that. But I just want to tweak with him a little bit. And he's like, oh, hell yeah. So. Who was it? Come on. Who was no. it? And I, <laughs> I had the bike in the in the truck with the handlebar hanging out. Just, you could see it, but it wasn't obvious. Uh-huh. I watched the guy go back to the pit. His bike's not there. So he's freaking out. And it became... <laughs> Yeah, I think Patrick was over here earlier, so he kept tearing over to the pit. Where's my bike? I don't know what you're talking about. And I keep looking at it just to kind of tell him, you know, give him the hints. Like, I'm not going to – I don't want to ruin his race run. It's national champs. I'm not going to be a complete jerk. Uh-huh. He also had to learn a lesson, right? Like, uh -huh. it was like, don't mess with your mechanics in a bad way. Yeah. And he went tearing into the trailer, which you've been around enough races, like – even if you know the trailer, you're great friends. Like the trailer is kind of sacred ground in case there's prototypes or anything like that. And he just went tearing in there. He was so just flummoxed and off his thing. <laughs> and like, yeah, you might want to make sure, he, you know, so-and-so goes through it well. And he just looks at me and end of the race. I'm like, so how'd the bike go? And I told him afterwards, I was like, I didn't do anything. And I wasn't going to, but <laughs> uh -huh. you need to never do that again. And he learned he got the point like yeah. you know he or i might have even told him before his race like look i didn't do anything i wasn't going to do anything but you had to learn the lesson and he learned the lesson so you know but that was just no one i hated it, it was never that what like at least when i was there i'm sure the racers had someone that you know oh hey i'd rather not lose to that guy or something like that like mm -hmm they might've had some minor rivalries where it's just like, yeah, I don't really want to lose to that guy, but no one where it was like, I have to beat them. Um, it. No, it was, it, it's a traveling family. You do that many crazy drives and that many goofy things. You guys have, you have fun with each other. Like 
even the competing team is a blast, you know. Yeah. Would you be ready for the season to be over? Like by the time it was oh, yeah. over? <laughs> yeah. Um, how long would it how long would it take for you to want to be back on on the road? A month. <laughs> <laughs> it was, you know, you missed it. I mean, there's some fun stories like I I mean uh, it's not Sears Point now. I forget what they call it, but Sears Point Raceway in Sonoma. They had that yeah. national mm-hmm. in 2006, you know, completely useless national champs on like a grass hill. Uh-huh. Uh, and we show up there Wednesday and they have Wednesday night drags going. Um, so the quarter miles lit up, all the locals are bringing out their little, you know, homemade cars or whatever. And they're running the lights for everybody. And all the pits are set up. So, you know, a bunch of mechanics kind of go over there to watch. And we're just like, dude, it'd be fun to take the trucks down there. Just, you know, goof all. Like I'm in a Chevy 3500 with absolutely nothing done to it. Um, <laughs> Zeph Wadsworth, you know, and uh, with Luna and, you know, he, they've got a rad truck and Monk and uh, Mike Van Linden, who was for with Fox, who used to be, was an ex flat track dirt racer. Um, you know, he so he's just got racing in his blood and he's like, uh-huh. and like, yeah, da, da, da. Zeph was all ready to go, but uh, Chris wouldn't let him because they just put a new transmission in the Luna truck like oh, a week before. Um, so he's like, uh, uh-uh, no. Um, and one guy just is like, Hey, let me go talk to him. And he runs over to the starting guys and they're like, Hey, we got two of the trucks that want to run. Can we sneak them in? And they're like, and the line is there's a couple hundred cars out there, right? Like mm-hmm. tons of people. And the guy's like, the starter's like, yeah, just have them drive around here and we'll just sneak them in for a run. And so it ends up being me and the Gary Fisher guys. Uh, <laughs> so, I, you know, line up, I think I was in the left, yeah, I was in the left lane, they're in the right lane, and they're uh, futzing with a video camera, trying to view, you know, and I'm just by myself, I'm like, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Mike Van Linden later tells me when I get back, he's like, I knew you won when I saw the bed of the truck twist. (laughs) Like, I was pulling on the steering wheel as hard as I could, stomped on the brake, and I knew exactly where my turbo spooled on that thing. So I got the turbo spooled, lights went, and I took off. And I think I hit 75 miles an hour at the end of the quarter mile. <laughs> no way. And smoked them. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that's so cool. Two years oh, later, man. I did it outside of um, Toronto. They were, we were in that race to get to Mont saint and all the you know, trucks trying to get over there. And they were plugging along at like 55, and I went by them at like 70 with the trailer. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. yeah there, there was always fun stories like that. And that's what I mean. We were all family. Like we all yep. just had fun. So yep. yeah. like I, not to get too philosophical with <laughs> Corona and all that jazz, but like, what's, what's it been like for you seeing, and I'm basically just thinking of social media. Cause that's kind of <laughs> the only way to really keep up with stuff, but yeah. like racers don't have racing. So yeah. What's it? How have you how have you looked at what they do? Like, are you paying attention to their stuff? Does it have the same kind of weight that it might have if we had racing going on? No, it, it well, it doesn't have the same weight because they're all training and they're all waiting and they're all you know and they all have to post something just to keep people entertained and they're just as bored as the rest of us, right? For, and, yeah, for sure. You know, it's just 
like, I mean, it's always fun just to see how people are and what they're posting and, you know, things like that. And, you know, I know a couple of them, so I'll comment on things here and there, whatever. But, I mean, we're all just in this waiting game at this point. So it's like, I mean, I don't even, I'm usually posting photos from races that I've taken and I'm like, I just don't even post barely. Just because yeah. what is, you know, there's not much, okay, I'm sitting around my house all day on the computer right now and occasionally wrenching on something in my shop, so. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. I, I know there's bigger, bigger problems in the world, but I just wish there was bike racing right oh, now so bad. Like, I, I just got sucked into the, what is it? The formula one show on Netflix, the drive to survive or whatever. Like yeah. I just mm -hmm. finished last night and I was like, but it was, here's the drama from racing. I'm like, I, I needed some of that. So yeah, totally. You know, yeah. I, I miss it. And it, you know, it could be, a regional race to you know see i mean we should have had sea otter dual slalom one of the best races of the year it should have been on Saturday. <laughs> yeah totally uh yep it'll come back i know it will but um let's get into just kind of more general tech sort of bike maintenance -y kind of things like what's what's your must-have tool and what's the tool that you have but never use <laughs> must have tool i mean you've got your allens and whatever and and i i first off the key thing is nice tools like i don't i've got some abby stuff that is i've actually got a custom uh abby hammer that they made me um oh. that oh i could send you a photo of it later but i'll show it in the video um i got bored one day we were digging through and there was and you know because we do vision which is uh tt stuff and we had a TT extension. I sent Jason and Abby an email. I'm like, I got a really stupid idea. Um, I want to make a tie out of an arrow extension. And his response was, sweet baby Jesus. And, <laughs> you know, I didn't put a time frame on it. I just sent them four extensions. And about two months later, I now have a carbon aluminum handled uh, custom Abby tie hammer. Um, yeah. Uh, but must-haves, the weird one, I think that's quote-unquote weird one that is a must-have is a pair of Nipex pliers. Um, oh, yeah. Dude, Wentz is all about those. He actually sent me like a little mini pair for Christmas. Those things are sweet. They are because, I mean, I just, um, my Norco, I just took the air cap off to get the volume spacer out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like it's a socket set basically on, you know, in one handle. Because they're smooth jaw, they don't bar anything. You've got all the adjustability. They've got, you know, the size I've got. It's got a good length. I've seen them custom milled down to work as cone wrenches. So you just need two of them, and you've got two cone wrenches, all sizes. Um, so that's kind of one of them. The other one I love is I've got a pair of flush cuts. Um, What's but that? They are basically an oversized pair of diagonal cutters. They're for cutting laminates, I think, for carpentry. Hmm. But they okay. cut exact like their cutting face is exactly in line with one face of the um, of them, and it's probably the most expensive pair of uh, zip tie cutters you can have because it's like six <laughs> all I do is use them to cut zip ties because okay. they don't have that little edge of the zip tie to slice my fingers open. Oh yeah, totally. So weirdly enough, those are you know the Nipex and the flush cuts are my you know favorites. The custom hammer is just a blast. Uh, <laughs> and what the one tool I don't need that 
that I have that I don't need, huh? If I don't need yeah, it, there... I, I don't even remember what it is. Um, like, have you have you ever bought something and you've used it once? Like, and oh, yeah. not just like, oh, you know, it's a little socket or something small, but like something legit and you've only used it one time? Yeah, headset wrenches. Well, I used them a bunch when I was back in the shop. I don't use them anymore, like ever. Okay. For threaded headsets. Um, yeah. I got to go through the graveyard of tools to see what I've got in there. Because <laughs> like, it's things you don't... I have a micrometer for when I work for Cannondale that I never use anymore. Um, Why do you need that for them? Because for the Headshock and the lefties, they had the they have that bearing race system, the mm-hmm. needle bearings. And at the time, they've gotten much better with this, but at the time, you had to measure the thickness of each race. They were paired and set up specific. Each fork was measured to get the right preload, and they were down to a thousandth of an inch. And Holy so crap. When you rebuilt the fork, if you had to replace the races, you had to have the exact same width race. Otherwise, it bound or it had play or whatever, like the preload wouldn't be right. <laughs> um, it's a really nice set of micrometers for that time frame, and I haven't used them since. Um, okay. Yeah, that's probably off the top of my head without like literally tearing every tool out and going, oh, here's the dusty one. Um, that's going to be the one. I- on that on that head shock note, what was the product you always dreaded working on? Like it doesn't have to be that head shock, but that just kind of brought that up. Yeah, like- <laughs> that's high on the list for a lot of people, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> which once you understood it, it was fine to work on. Um, mm-hmm. Was there anything that just always gave you fits? Trying to think. And I'm, not, I'm not asking you to like throw stuff under the bus or anything. No, no, no. And I'm just different. And it, I would say every single brake manufacturer has been here at some point. So, you, you know, <laughs> a brake that doesn't bleed well or just doesn't work well. Like, I don't feel like I'm throwing anybody under the bus there because literally every company's had one brake that just didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, for whatever reason, those would drive me nuts because you knew going in, this was just going to be a fight, uh-huh. um, kind of thing. Um, other than that, it was back when I was in the shop, when you just have a bike come in that you're just like, Oh God, like they weren't going <laughs> to, they weren't going to pay to replace the parts they needed to. And you had to do everything you could and whatever. And you got creative with it. But, um, I'd say right now it'd be, yeah disc brakes where you were just like oh okay the, i know this one's going to be bad um this is going to be entertaining but if you had time it's fun to really fight it and see if you could win totally so what what do you feel like is the most useful product improvement over the last 10 years then when you think about stuff like that and just for for joe every man on the on a bike honestly the general quality of product has just gone up Mm -hmm. Um, like I know it's annoying people are annoyed by bottom bracket standards and headset standards and there's way too many of them but to get any growth out of our product at this point sometimes you have to go to specialized product you know you have to make it exactly how you need it so that you get all the benefits and stuff like that so I don't have a problem with you know specialized like oh and I don't mean by the specialized the brand just like this bike uses this thing and that's just how it is. And it's one part that works on it as long as it works well. Um, as long as it's done right. And you, I find most of it, you just have to understand the theory behind why they did it and it's okay. Um, and the thought process, but, uh, 
tires have gotten massively better. They're amazing. Um, shifting's awesome. You know, I mean, I never had a specific problem without front with front railers, but it's nice not having them anymore. Um, yep. But I, I'd say that overall, just the quality of product. I mean, the stuff you're seeing on baseline bikes blows away what we were working on 20 years ago. Hmm. <laughs> like the high end 20 years ago. So, you know, yeah. that's kind of pretty nice to see. Um, hmm. So it's I, part of it is, you know, I'm out of the shop life now, so I don't get to see everything out there. Um, yep. Our stuff really well. I follow all the pit bits and stuff like that. Um, and so that's always fun. But I'd say just quality. I mean, suspension nowadays is insane. The brakes that we have nowadays and the tires to run them, you know. One one thing I'd like to see back, I want to see the old Shimano XT4 piston um, dual rotor prototypes come back. Because <laughs> now we have the tires and the suspension to deal with brakes that are quote unquote too strong. Hmm. I know like if like e-bike category, it seems like that would work. Yeah. I mean, they had a radiator in the, you know, that sun out, <laughs> out under the seat and under the fork. I mean, <laughs> like imagine what you could do with that system now. Hmm. So, but yeah. Um, yeah. I did best improvements, just general durability, you know, and then geometries are, up to yeah. what we need and things like that. Like just, you know, we were a young industry 20 years ago, especially on the mountain bike thing. Like we didn't know what we were doing. Hmm. So. All right. Talk, talk to me about hub engagement. <laughs> like I, I, I know a ton of listeners probably just have this on lock and it's, it's not a big deal, but we did that, you know, we internally, we call it the cheap bike test, which was like yeah. the sub $2,000 bikes. And, you know, there's a lot of slop in those hubs. Oh yeah. And in the rear, talking about the rear hub. And then you sent me the, uh, the Onyx wheel set and that basically has no slop at all. <laughs> yeah. and just the improvement that does like, what's the, why is it so tough or so expensive to get a highly engaging hub? Like why is a, a $2,000 bike? Why are the hubs so tolerances to a hub? to be an incredibly fast engaging hub takes precision It's all it is from down to machining poles to machining free bodies to the rings inside the hub or the hub shell itself or any of those systems is precision. That's just what it is, right? Um, precision costs because you have, and this goes through anything in the industry period, you hold the higher tolerance, more stuff gets thrown out into the garbage bin because it's not tolerance. Some's fixable. Like if you're milling out the center of something and it's too small, you just mill it again to a bigger size, you're good. But if you accidentally went too bad, too big, that's now a paperweight. Um, and so it just costs money to get it right at a higher precision. And that's why you know, you have bikes at ten, twelve, fourteen thousand dollars retail. It sounds insane, but the precision on those, in theory, should be amazing. Um, you know, whereas if you have three poles hitting, you know, it, it, they can have this really thick engagement um, notch to catch in, so it doesn't have to be quite as precise on where the 
edge is, you can make it cheaper and therefore you can get it down the line, but it just doesn't engage as quickly or as solidly. But yeah, it's precision. I mean, that's going to be the number one, the name of the game is, okay. you know. Do you think, do you think engagement like that's overlooked by most people? Um, I think it depends on what you want. Um, you know, like, yeah, I work for FSA. I love our wheels. I, but I've also got a good relationship with Onyx and I obviously like to build wheels. So I have a lot of Onyx hubs at this point. And like, I found that in technical little climbs, I don't pedal through and then pedal spike. I just do a, um, a pedal kick. Like I just backpedal quickly because I know I'm going to have instant engagement right at the power source, right? Like right at the power mm-hmm. of my pedal stroke. If I just backpedal quickly and hit it again, I'm good. Um, so it's actually changed my riding style. Um, but what happens in many cases is you get to a very high engagement hub and you increase your drag too. Um, yep. And so therefore, you know, it can be argued that on a downhill bike, you don't really need that engagement, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it, it goes both ways. I mean, we got Gwen winning without a chain. It didn't matter how fast his hub engaged, right? Like, uh, yeah, garbage. Like, it just, there you go. But when you do have to pedal on those bikes, you have such a small time period to pedal. Um, you got to get everything in. So a fast engaging hub is actually very helpful there. But you could, the argument could be made, meh, doesn't really matter. Um, yeah, that's what that's what Team Robot said in the forum, and it's like, yeah, under certain certain conditions, it's like, yeah, I don't care about my hub, hub engagement yeah, at all. Exactly, and so that's you know, now XC that could be they're just pedaling, and yeah, they they're just on the gas the whole time. So again, they're also trying; mm-hmm. they are coasting. They need to save every watt they can. So what runs the smoothest? That being said, I'm sure they. I'm not an XC racer by any stretch, but I'm sure they love having a fast engaging hub I'd say in mm-hmm. Euro, it makes a really big difference because plenty of courses you have to pedal on. You have to get a, a pedal in every chance you get on that descent. And so it better make, you know, those guys are racing for tenths of a second stage after stage. It'll make a difference at the end of the weekend. Um, that would be my take on it. Um, you know, again, different people, different thought processes on it. Do you get, I mean, we saw your, your Norco optic in our bike check section. I think it was bike of the day the other day. Yeah. Um, clearly you nerded out on that one, but (laughs) are you, are you always like over the top with your bikes like that? Or is it to the point where you're working on bikes so much, you don't even care about the one you're riding? Uh, well, when I build a bike, I'm a complete nerd about it. Like I, you know, I've been working on bikes for 20 years now. Holy crap. I'm old. Um, and so, and I've been in the industry long enough and I've built one off bikes and special editions and race bikes and stuff like that. And so part of it is an off the shelf bike is just meh to me at this point. Right. And uh-huh. I, I feel like a complete jerk for saying that because there's some <laughs> beautiful bikes coming off the line, like brand new, stock configurations that look amazing uh-huh you do enough custom little goofball things you just want to do more custom goofball things and get half the time i wonder if i get more excitement out of building a bike than riding the bike 
Mm, yeah. um, like every little detail. I mean, the Norco I've got there, the Scott that's sitting behind me right now, waiting for my suspension. Like, you know, I did heat shrink on the rear brake cable and rear shift cable. Just <laughs> I don't need to. The zip tie makes more sense to keep them together because I can cut it and service one without the other. And but that's not fun. you know there's something about trying to figure out every detail of a bike that's just fun for the building when it comes to colorways whether it comes to you know just all those little touches from nipple color or you know spoke color i mean i agonize over if i should do black or silver spokes so many times I built (laughs) with a quarter of the wheel was white spokes and the rest were black spokes in which way that Uh looked Um, when, are there any performance issues with the, with the color you're choosing? No, not at all. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and that's one thing I won't, if I know what I want, I won't sacrifice performance for looks per se. For some bling. Yeah. It has to work. And then if it's what I want for the job, then I go to the next step of, can I, you know, if this is the grip I want to run, can I get it in a different color? Great. If not, it's black. Like, but that's the grip I want. So that's the grip it has to be like, hmm. and kind of in that realm. So, um, once they're built, um, I have my moments where I'm happy to tear it down to every last bolt and clean it and build it back up. And I love that aspect doing a full like race rebuild for lack of a better term. Um, but there's plenty of days where my chain's squeaking and my bottom brackets creaking and my headset noise <laughs> and, Differences. I know exactly what it is. What damage am I causing? Is it going to actually create an issue? Am I at risk of breaking down on the trail? Or is it just, yeah, I haven't looped my chain in two weeks and it's just making noise. I'm going to add a little bit of wear this time, but it'll be okay. Like, yeah, you, yeah. You work on them enough, you know what noise makes means what, and therefore, can I get away with it or can I not? So. Do you ever get to the point where you're like, eh, instead of bleeding the brakes on that bike, I'll just try and get a new one? A new bike. <laughs> I do a bike every year. Um, so pretty much I don't have to do suspension work, brakes on occasion, replacing pads. But, you know, my maintenance has gone down a little bit when I flip my bike. I, someone already posted on my Norco. They bought a Gorilla Grab a couple of years ago. And they're like, dude, I'm still on your Gorilla Gravity. I love it. Let me know when you sell that one. <laughs> I saw that. That's so funny. <laughs> I pretty much pre-sold the bike and I've ridden it five times. That's <laughs> <laughs> so good. Um, that is the nice thing, though, too, though. If it needs to be fixed, I make sure it's fixed right. So when someone does buy one of my used bikes, it's I can just about guarantee it kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. So yep. it's helpful. But... Yeah, it's, I mean, if it needs it, I'll do it. I mean, I'll do fork overhauls. I'll do seals on an air shock if it needs it. And I, if it needs it, it needs it. I mean, we're running on, we're all riding stuff that, you know, the the pros are riding the year before testing it. Like it's, but could ride it just as well this year in our production this year. Like it's, you know, you, as I was saying, I was watching that Formula One show, like, no one's driving those cars except for them. No one's using that technology. We're using the technology the pros are using. Like, that's why the price is so much, but, and why maintenance has gone up and, you know, everything like that. But it's pretty damn rad to be playing with all this. So, heck yeah, it is. All right. <clears throat> Outside of like your, your current bike, what's, what's kind of, what's the bike that 
gives you warm fuzzies from the past when you look at it and see it like the the old iDrive, the dhi that like pd and ec were on like a bike like that i'm just like oh yeah that's so sick <laughs> trying to you know i mean the old 303s were just a beauty of bolts and nuts and going together and complex mm -hmm. and worked really well um and they weren't that complex once you really got into it, it it's always going to be a downhill bike like for me yeah a downhill there's something about just a, da a, a clean lined downhill bike that i oh, like <laughs> you know and there's avoid the the clean you know we there's the ongoing joke oh it looks like a session but you know what trek did with that bike is they made a really clean clean looking bike um mm. and that's what i love are just the clean lines and whatever um you know the old iron horse sunday was oh yeah and you know i think that one of them because i lost it after because i never got a chance to even ride one but or phenomenal right like i just why did you not want that thing um so that's you know kind of a big thing um that would have been just some of those yeah they've gotten cleaner and cleaner so they look nicer and nicer i mean the new Scott Gamblers are one that I'll, you know, that I drool. Yeah. They just, it can't be a complex frame per se. Um, you know, some of the fun ones, the old Super 8s, the old Bullets are always just bring a smile to your face. <laughs> Anything with an old Monster T, like 2000 <laughs> era. Well, I mean, part of that is I had an old RM7 once with a Monster, oh, you monster did? T. Oh, you like God, that fork ran well. Um, but it just, you know, back then that was beefy. Like, holy cow. It was just, you know, and the rest of the bike might have rode like crap, but that fork was a phenomenal. Um, and I mean that of any downhill bike of that generation, they were, you know, you just held on and see what it would do. Um, the old LTS, GT, you put GT in my mind. GT LTS is just because of the time frame. The Lobos were always a classic old school. Um, yeah, those are pretty sick. Yeah. And I think back then it was who was trying something, right? Like that's what that was back then. Now it's, now I want to see a clean, clean bike. Like it, you know, form follows function. And I just think, and after the race experience time, like just seeing a cleanly done bike. And that's what I do love about pit bits now. Like, and the race mechanics, like part of it is, can you make a clean bike? Hmm. So I don't know. Yeah, it's cool. All right. We'll, uh, we'll wrap it up. Give us, give us home mechanics and want to be pro mechanics. Give us a couple hacks and tips to make our lives easier working on a bike servicing ourselves blah 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 like that kind of thing weirdly clean work area and take your time is going to be your number one thing at first like lay everything out if you're taking a hub apart if you're taking a headset apart give yourself a clean bench lay it out as it comes out so you can remember which way it goes to clean everything and pay attention to it like that's the detail work of making sure it goes back together correctly. Look at it before you take it apart, <laughs> clean your bike. Um, I had a old mechanic once tell me the most important 
tools of any mechanic and even more so race mechanic, but any mechanic with brushes and sponges, clean the bike. For, huh. um, for one, for sponsorship, like you only wanted to see a clean bike, but it's, you notice if you pay attention, cleaning a bike, you notice things, you know, you notice that the zip tie is not cut or you lost a zip tie. Um, you notice your cracks, you notice something's loose. Like if you take time to clean a bike really well, you'll notice a lot. Um, Hmm. And I got guys chiming in and my freaking computer's blinging everywhere. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, good tools, you know, a good set of L-Bend Allen wrenches, a good set of, um, good set of good tools, good quality tools, like make a big difference. You won't round out bolts. You won't break bolts. A torque wrench for a home mechanic, I think, is massive. Um, hmm. Nowadays, everything, carbon bars, all the high-precision stuff, low-torque bolts, aluminum fasteners, get a torque wrench. They're not super expensive, and, you know, I mean, I deal with warranties regularly, and if they go off, if, you know, I got to check, um, you'll break less stuff, <laughs> number one. Like, <laughs> things will uh-huh. be adjusted correctly, and that's that'll make a big difference. Um, you know, your shop, your actual shop mechanic, and there's some not so great shop mechanics out there, but there's some really good ones out there that, I mean, all of us race mechanics came from shop mechanics um, and the good ones listen to them. They're not trying to, you know, lead you wrong or rip you off or anything like that. Um, you know, it's worth paying for a good mechanic to do it right and not have an issue down the road. Um, and so, you know, depending on where you are, sometimes they're hard to find and then, yeah, you got to do it yourself, but pay attention to the details. That's details are the number one thing, like okay. details, 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 cause that'll make the difference long-term on, you know, whether it's a bearing size or it's a, you know, a crack or a scratch or whatever. If you know the bike, you'll know what it is. Yeah. Cool. Is there anything we you want to go over that we didn't catch? I'm looking. I think we caught all the stuff. I had I had your best Clay Porter story. <laughs> well, Clay and I didn't see much of each other, so I didn't have. He was <laughs> hiding, you know, hiding in the condo on video, and I was in the you know under the tent wrenching or he uh-huh. was the hill, um, you know, kind of thing. So me and him didn't actually communicate much per se <laughs> um they were all good so cool. my favorite grubby story story was the fact that he used to always get rotisserie chickens and while we'd be driving he'd just be mowing a rotisserie chicken <laughs> really oh yeah he'd just buy it and just start just chomping on it, it was amazing <laughs> yeah get that protein yeah no it, made sense. <laughs> it was efficient and it was cheap and so and it tasted good i couldn't blame him but it was just always like okay Everybody's got to go rotisserie chicken. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Well, dude, thanks. It seems like it worked out. Like, dude, you blew through that wheel. (laughs) I had to take, I had to concentrate a couple times too. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah. No, that was fun. I got more stories at some point. I'll tell you when we sit down and have a beer one day, I'll tell you. It sounds good. And yeah, when we, when we hang up, I want to hear who, which rider left the, 
pee bottle in your truck. <laughs> we'll see about that one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks, Patrick. Appreciate it. Thanks. Have a good one. All right. Peace. Bye.